Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Scott Hickox. If I have a chance to meet you, I'm part of the teaching team here, and it is always an honor when I get an opportunity to be before you and open God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles or your device, if you want to go to Genesis chapter 16, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, this is the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar. And next week, when we get to Genesis chapter 17, actually, Abram and Sarai get new names. They get Abraham and Sarah. Maybe more familiar to you, probably more familiar to me as I'm talking. So if I happen to use those names, just know that's who we're referring to and extend a little grace. Um, Tim has mentioned this before, but I think it's important for us to remember as we read Genesis, uh, who it was written to and why. Because it helps us understand the author's intent uh, in giving us the narratives that we have. Uh, The way I like to say it is, um, I would say that Genesis is certainly for us today, but it was written to the nation of Israel. Does that distinction, do you get that? Does that make sense to you? It's true of every book in the Bible, frankly. Um, The books are written for us, but not to us. Every every author has, has a an audience in mind when he writes the book. And I think the the better we understand that, the better we're able to understand what God has for us uh, in it. So Moses is the author. He wrote the book of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, And all those were written on the the plains of Moab as God's people are on the edge of the promised land. They've they've come out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert for, for 40 years. And Moses really writes this to remind them of all that God has done uh, in their midst. He wants to document history so that the people will remember the law and the the covenants and and the miracles. He wants them to remember all of it. He wants them to remember God's mercy in their misery. He he also wants to encourage them to remain faithful to God despite um, confusion, opposition, and a lot of waiting. If you've been around uh, LCF for a bit, you, you know that we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. And... We saw very early on, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that God promised that the seed of the woman would produce the Messiah, the one who's going to come and and crush the head of the serpent. And what Tim has been showing us is how God has sort of narrowed that line down to a specific family. And we've seen recently that God actually made this promise to Abram, that that Abram's going to have offspring, and from his offspring is going to come this serpent crusher. He's going to have a multitude of descendants. They're going to outnumber the stars. And right now, sort of the the major tension in the plot is that there's no child yet, right? That's where we are. And so it's been been 10 years of waiting since the promise and still no child. So day after day and, and week after week and month after month and year after year, the promise is still unfulfilled. And at some point, you might be tempted to to take matters into your own hands. And that's exactly what Abram and Sarai do here. And the results are going to be tragic. Thankfully, we have a God who shows up in the midst of tragedy. He extends mercy and misery. That's why the sermon has its title. We're going to read Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It is not very long, so if you have your... Bibles, uh, here we go, Genesis chapter 16. Abram's wife Sarai had born, not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her 
I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And so Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. And then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. She named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called Beer Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful just to be together this morning. We're grateful for your word and its truth. And you promise that it speaks to us today. It is for us today. And you've given us your spirit, who's the spirit of truth, who speaks and teaches. And so I just pray, Lord, that he would move in our midst this morning, that that he would teach us. And Lord, that you'd open your eyes to see the beauty of the gospel in the work of Jesus on our behalf. May we see your, your mercy in our misery, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to sort of work our way through the passage today, almost verse by verse, and and just talk about it. I'm hoping that as we do that, again, that the Lord will just uh, be teaching us all something, impress some things on your heart. But obviously, the story starts in verse 1, and and that's where it really just helps set the stage for us, because remember back in chapter 11, we're told that Sarai is barren. She hasn't been able to, to have children. And what we need to understand is that in that culture... A woman's only job was to have children. I mean, she was to have children and build a family, which Sarah even says in the, in the passage. That was their only job, period. I mean, full stop right there. And so a woman's worth was completely tied to her ability to have children. So Sarah is bearing the weight of that reality. And then on top of that, if that weren't enough, remember that God has made this promise to her husband, Abram. And has told him that he's not only going to have a son, he's going to have a multitude, right, of offspring. And so just for a moment, I want you to just put yourself in Sarai's shoes. She, she already feels worthless. She feels like she's, she's letting her husband down. And every time Abram reminds her of this promise that God has made, even though he might be trying to encourage her, it probably feels like he's just twisting a knife in her. Because now she's, she's not only letting her husband down, now she's... She's letting God down. 
She's, she's letting the whole world down. So just try to imagine her grief and her pain. It must have been misery for her. And then we're told that she has a, a slave girl from Egypt. Now, there's so much packed into that sentence. But, but first, the fact that Hagar is from Egypt is a reminder of their past. Again, we have to go back a little bit and remember. But, but remember when Abram and Sarai went to Egypt? It was during the famine, and, and, and Abram told Pharaoh that Sarai was his sister to protect himself, remember? And when Pharaoh finds out, he sends them away. He sends them with flocks and with herds and with servants. And so Hagar is sort of a, a shameful reminder of their past. In addition, this description of her as a, as a slave makes it clear that she is an outsider. Again, in that culture, um, she, she would have been nothing more than a, a piece of property. She would have been easily discarded, not, not worth much at all. And even her name, her name is not an Egyptian name, it's a Hebrew name. Which means that, that Abram and Sarah likely gave it to her when they took her out of Egypt. And her name means, it means sojourner, it has the idea of being a stranger. So just trying to imagine what her life was like. That must have been misery as well. I mean, it's hard not to read that first book, that first verse in this chapter and not have compassion for both of these women. And then in verse 2, we see the plan. Now, today in America in 2023, this plan seems crazy to us. But it was common practice in those days. It was accepted in the culture. A barren woman could, could take one of her servants and give her to her husband. And if the servant had a child, that child immediately became the child of the mistress. I mean, of the, I mean, of the, the children of the wife. So keep in mind, I don't think Abram and Sarai sin. They don't sin because they want something God has forgiven, forbidden. This is not something he's forbidden. They, they don't sin because they abandon hope in God's promise. I think instead their failure arises when they become so desperate for, for the good gifts that God has promised them that they're willing to do anything to get them immediately instead of waiting on the Lord's timing. Again, I'm not condoning their actions. I'm just trying to give us some context and, and I hope maybe just a little measure of, of empathy for the misery that they were going through. Now, I want to be clear. Nowhere in Scripture does God condone polygamy, okay? Nowhere. This, this passage is, uh, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. The Bible does not condone this. This is a terrible idea, okay? But even if you need further assistance, that, that, that God really hates this, there's actually even some hints to it in this passage. Allusions to another part of Israel's past. Look at, look at the language that's used in verse 3. It says, Sarai took her servant and gave her to Abram. Now, does that language sound like anything you've heard before? If you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, look at this. Eve took of the fruit and gave it to her husband, right? I think Moses is trying to draw some allusions here. And then look at this. In, in verse 2, most translations say that, that, that Abram listened to the voice of his wife. And in Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying this morning, okay? Um, these passages are not suggesting that husbands shouldn't listen to our wives, okay? 
In fact, most of us men, myself included, would do well to listen more to our wives, okay? I think what Moses is trying to make clear is this. He's reminding us that in the past, Abram listened to the voice of God. And now he listens to the voice of his wife instead. You see that? The message is this. We we shouldn't listen to anything or anyone above the voice of God. That's the message here. And keep in mind that Abram is the one who God has spoken to. He didn't speak to Sarai. And unfortunately, Abram, just like Adam, though, he sits by passively and he participates. I think the big takeaway just from this, these opening few verses here in chapter 16 is this. It, it, if we were beginning to think maybe that Abram and Sarai would, would make better choices than Adam and Eve, it, it, if we thought that redemption was going to come through better representatives, I think Moses just wants us to see that that's a false hope. Redemption for humanity, healing for our brokenness, forgiveness for our sins is going to have to come from outside of humanity. And the good news is he shows up in this passage. And we're going to get there in just a little bit. I think one of the great things about the Bible is, is frankly, it's honesty. Because when it, it talks about the people in these stories, it's really honest about their successes, but also about their failures. And frankly, I think the Bible's honesty is one of the great evidences of its, of its trustworthiness. It just tells us the truth. I mean, just think back one chapter. This is, last week I know we were outside, but the week before that, Tim preached uh, chapter 15. And in chapter 15, we're told that Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as as righteousness. Remember that? God God made a covenant with Abram. He's considered the father of the faith. I mean, this is like a mountaintop experience for him. And one chapter later, He blows it. Big time. But not only him, Sarai and Hagar too. They they all sin. There's no hero in the story except Jesus. As Tim reminds us, he's the only hero. He's the point of this whole book. He's the hero of every story in the Bible. This story makes it easy for us to see because every, every character in this story blows it. Every person in this story, every, every person in the book of Genesis, every person in the whole Bible is as flawed as each one of us. And that should be sort of strangely encouraging to us, right? So they go forward with this plan. Abram takes Hagar as his wife. She gets pregnant. And immediately Hagar begins to look down on Sarai. In verse 4, the, the, the actual, in the original language, it actually says that, that Sarai became small in Hagar's eyes. Now, before we go on, I'm going to give you, we don't have time. This is a whole other sermon for another day, but this is just a little homework for those of you that want it. Um, I would encourage you to go read Galatians chapter 4 this week as your homework. Um, because Paul uses this story that we're reading right here in the book of Galatians. As he's talking about to the Galatian church, about how to, the Galatian church thinks they can obtain salvation through good works. And Paul says, no, that's not the answer. See, we've got the gospel right here in this passage, I don't know if you see it, but let's talk about it for just a minute. Abram, he has two women in front of him, right? He, he has a choice here. He's remembering that God has promised him. He wants a family. God has promised him a family. And so he looks at these, these two women, and he's thinking to himself, I'm, I'm getting old, but I'm still fertile. And so here I've got Hagar, who is young and fertile. 
And here I've got Sarai, who is old and barren. And he says, if, if I try and have a family through Hagar, we could do this. Human effort, we could do this. If I try and have a family through Sarai, I'm going to have to rely on God's supernatural grace. You see, he has this choice. He can allow grace to save him, or he can try and do it through his own human ability. And the whole message of the book of Galatians is that you can't be made right through human efforts. You can't be made right by living a good life. You, you can't say, I'm going I'm to develop my own righteousness, I'm going to give it to God, and then he'll bless me. Paul says, no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you develop a righteousness and give it to God. The gospel is that God develops a righteousness and gives it to you. That's the good news of the gospel. And that happened when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, right? He came down in the person of Jesus. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. And he rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell. That's the gospel. And what's really the climax of the book of Galatians, when Paul, Paul tells the Galatian church, he says, human effort won't save you. You've got to rely on God's supernatural grace. He uses this story as his example. Again, I think there's more for us to learn there. I would just encourage you to go, but we've got to keep moving. When Hagar uh, begins to treat Sarah with contempt, Sarah says, I can't handle this. She's looking down on me and she tells Abram, she says, listen, this is all your fault, Right? Now, it seems a little crazy at, at first glance. She's the one that gave Hagar to Sarah, right? But I think the more I think about it, I think she's right. Because as we saw before, Abram, he had a choice. I mean, remember, God had spoken to him, not to them. He's a man, he has sort of, he's over those two women, and frankly, he just takes advantage of both of them. So how does he respond when she says that? What a wimp, Right? I mean, one act of faithlessness often leads to another. He says, not my problem. You take care of it. So Sarah begins to treat her harshly. And we, we don't know all that that means. Again, she was, she was a slave in that culture, so I think you could use your imagination. It wasn't good. Well, all we know is it's bad enough for a pregnant woman to flee to the desert, okay? It appears she's heading back to Egypt. And look at verse 7. It says that the angel of the Lord found her. I want to pause there for just a minute. Who is the angel of the Lord? Because this is the first time that, that he's mentioned in the Bible. And all the commentators that I read believe that this is Jesus. They call this a, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ. Some people use the word that the pre-incarnate Christ, which just means the, the image of the invisible God before Jesus actually became a man. Remember that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's existed throughout eternity. You can ask Tim if you have more questions about that, okay? But Jesus has always existed, but he shows up here in this story. And, and I want to tell you just quickly, I'm just going to give you three. There are more, but there are three reasons that seem to be that the commentators, why they believe this is Jesus and why, frankly, I believe with them. First, throughout the Bible, angels always adamantly refuse to be worshipped because they're not God. They refuse it. This angel accepts worship. Um, secondly, uh, when Hagar calls him Lord, the word that's used there is, uh, it's the word for uh, divine, it's the divine name for Jehovah. She is calling him God, and again, he receives that. 
And then the last thing is in verse 10, when the angel speaks, he doesn't say the Lord's going to do this or the Lord's going to do that. He says, I will. Because he's Jesus. He is the Lord. And so we have, we have Jesus now showing up in the book of Genesis. And again, he's the hero of the story, as he always is. And what I love about this is look at, look at who he appears to first. Again, the first time the angel of the Lord has appeared in the Bible, and who does he appear to? An Egyptian slave woman running away from her master. Jesus, the good shepherd, the one with the heart to, to leave the 99 and go after the one, finds a slave woman in the desert. The text says the angel of the Lord found her. I just think that it's a beautiful picture. He is a seeking God. This woman is a, is a nobody. She's a servant. She's, she's property. And her name means stranger. And God went into the wilderness. He, he pursued her and he found her. That's what he does. He, he finds those who are destitute, those who don't belong, and he brings them to himself. See this? He calls her by name as well. Think about that for just a moment. It may not seem that significant to you, but, but nowhere in all the Old Testament does God address a woman by name. The only time. Not Eve, not Sarai, not Deborah, only Hagar. Did I mention she's an Egyptian slave? And God calls her by name. Don't miss the significance of that. I think maybe this is a good place just to pause for a second. I want to go back to where we started. Remember, we talked about context and who Moses is writing to. Remember who he's writing this to. He's writing this to the nation of Israel, right? They're on the edge of the promised land. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. But what were they doing before they were wandering? Who, who held them in bondage? Who chased them across the Red Sea? Egypt, Right? I think Moses wants us to see something there. Let's keep going. He calls her by name. There's more, though. He, he asks her questions. He, he wants to engage her in, in conversation. Now, just to be clear, anytime you see God asking questions in the Bible, it's not because he's seeking information, okay? You know that, right? He knows the answers. He doesn't ask questions to get information. He asks questions because he wants to engage a conversation. And Hagar answers the first question. She says that, She's fleeing from the presence of her mistress, uh, Sarai. She, she could flee from the presence of her mistress, but she could not flee from the presence of the Lord. And she couldn't answer the second question because uh, she was lost. She didn't know where she was. She was lost. You see, those are just the kind of people that Jesus seeks. He, he didn't come to seek and save those who, who need a little help. He came to seek and to save the lost. And then the angel of the Lord says, I will multiply your offspring. Now, this is similar to what the Lord had said uh, to Abram, but this time there is no blessing attached to it. She's going to be the mother of a multitude of offspring, and we'll get back to that. But, but for now, I want you to go down to the end of verse 11. We're going to kind of work our way back up. We've been going in order. I'm going to change it up for just a moment. In verse 11, the CSB says, um, the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. I think that's a little bit of an unfortunate translation because in the original language, it would have been more like, the Lord has heard your affliction. Do you see the difference there? 
The Lord doesn't hear of anything. He just hears. I mean, it's not like someone said to the Lord, hey, hey, have you heard about Hagar down there? Like he doesn't know? He, he simply hears her distress. And I don't know about you, but that's super encouraging to me this morning. You see, Jesus doesn't show up and he doesn't say, hey, I heard you praying down there. Man, you were praying so well, I just, I just had to come. That's not what he says. Again, thank goodness for me, he might never come. I'm not suggesting we don't pray, okay? Don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. We should. We should pray much more than we do. But I just think Moses wants us to see that God hears apart from our prayers. And that should be encouraging to us. He, he also doesn't say, um, man, I looked down and I saw what a, what a good life you're living. You're checking all the boxes. So, so I came. That's not why he came either. Why, why does he come? I would submit he comes because that's who he is. His very heart is such that our pain and our distress cries out to him. It's mercy in misery. He just hears our distress and he, and he comes. You see, Jesus is compassionate not because of our prayers, not because of our performance, but because of our pain. That's why he's compassionate. All right, keep working back up. The angel tells her that she's pregnant, that she's going to have a son, and she's going to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. I mean, do you see the mercy of Jesus in that moment? Here's this servant girl. She's been abused and mistreated. She's, she's been used and almost cast aside. And yet God reassures her by telling her that he hears. He knows what she's been going through. He, he hears the torment. He hears her inward groan. He hears her frustration and he has mercy on her. How comforting is that? And let me just say this morning, be assured if God hears what's happening in this Egyptian servant girl's heart, he hears what's going on in yours too. He hears because he cares. And here's the beautiful thing about that. Every time Hagar called her son by name, she's going to be reminded that God hears. Ishmael, God hears. She's going to be reminded of his mercy in the midst of her misery. And God reveals that Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of man, meaning he's going to be strong, he's going to be independent, he's going to be untamed. He's going to, the passage tells us he's going to be a fighter, his hand is going to be against everyone. In the last line of verse 12, some of your translations may say over against. Uh, the CSB says he will settle near all of his relatives. The implication there is, is east. And you remember what, what Tim has said about east or going east in the book of Genesis? East has always signified moving away from God, towards sin and, and judgment. And moving west has always indicated moving towards God uh, and blessing. Now, we see this pretty repeatedly in Scripture. We can actually still see it today. Uh, maybe this will help. Just hop on I-70 and start traveling east. Um, and pretty quickly, you realize you're just moving away from God's presence, right? Um, and you get out a couple of hours, and you realize you're like in a desert, right? It's in the middle of the, the wilderness. There's no favor, no blessing. But then if you start moving west towards the land of milk and honey... 
Um, you see the favor and the blessing of God, right? And a lot of championships, too. Uh, uh, Tim loved it in the first service, just so you know. Uh, I, I had to lighten this up a bit because, frankly, this topic of Ishmael is difficult uh, and it's heavy. Um, and the truth is, I don't fully understand it. There is divine mystery here. Uh, because in a few chapters, what we're going to see is that God is going to sovereignly choose Isaac to be the child of promise. And he's going to set Ishmael and all of his descendants throughout history to be against God's chosen people. It, it's all part of God's sovereign plan, and yet at the same time, Ishmael and his descendants are still culpable. They're still responsible for their sin and their rebellion against God. Again, I can't explain it. It's divine mystery. I think all we can do with Paul, like he says in, at the end of Romans chapter 11, he says, how unsearchable are your judgments? How inscrutable are your ways? That's all I can offer. But Hagar, back to the story. In light of experiencing God's mercy in her misery, look at how she responds in verse 13. I, I would contend that her, res, her response is, is worship. And I think there's something else you should recognize here. Um, her response is unique in all of Scripture. No one else in the entire Bible does this but Hagar. She names God. She gives God a name. This Egyptian slave woman gives God a name. Isn't that amazing? And what does she call him? In Hebrew there, the name she calls him is El Roy, the God who sees. And you see, in the Old Testament, the idea of God seeing is identical with the idea of God caring. If he sees, then he cares. And she says he is the God who sees. It's beautiful. Now, the next sentence in there is a little bit tricky. If you do any research here, like if you check 10 different commentaries, you're probably going to get 10 different translations. And what I don't, they all have the same idea, but they, they just translate a little bit differently because we frankly don't have English words to fit with the original language. But let's look at that verse. She says, at the end of verse 13, she says, You are Elroy. In this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? Now, the literal translation is, have I seen after the seer? That's how it was written in the original language. But in Hebrew, and, and thankfully in the CSB here as well, it's not a statement, it actually is a question. She says, have I seen the one who sees me? I mean, it's a, it's a statement, it's a question of wonder. She can't believe it. For, for the last 10 years, Hagar has been overlooked and looked down on. She's been mistreated. She's been marginalized. And now the God of the universe sees her. And she's overcome. It's mercy and misery. The Bible tells us that, that, that God's kindness leads to repentance. I don't know exactly what happened in that moment. But, but I think I do agree with what Tim Keller says here. He, he says in that moment, at least in a very rudimentary way, that, that Hagar got the gospel. And I want to be clear here. The gospel is not that God sees me. That's not necessarily good news. 
I mean, yes, God does see me. But the truth is, he, he sees everything. He sees everything about me. He sees the, the, the deepest parts of my heart, the sin that I don't even know is in there. By itself, that is not good news, church. But the good news of the gospel is, he sees everything about me, and he still loves me. That's the good news of the gospel. And I think in that moment, maybe Hagar got it. And I think the, the wonder of her question is, have I really seen the one who sees me and still loves me? And I think maybe we should all be asking that question of wonder this morning. Right after Hagar names God, the author takes us back to the well that was mentioned at the beginning. And, and the well gets a name as it oftentimes does in Scripture. And, and the name of the well she gives is the well of him who lives and sees. Again, it's beautiful. Now, thinking about a stranger, a woman at the well, does that remind you of another story in the Bible? Because Jesus encounters another woman at a well who, who happens to be a stranger as well. In, in John chapter 4, he meets the Samaritan woman, right? She's a stranger. She is an outsider. And Jesus tells her, he says, listen, you've had five husbands, and, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And he offers her living water. And after the encounter, she ran into town, remember? She's excitedly telling everyone. I, I met a man who sees, who knows everything I've ever done. Again, that wouldn't necessarily be good news because her life was a mess. But I think what she was saying is the same thing that Hagar is saying. She says, he sees everything about me and he still accepts me. He still welcomes me. He still loves me. That's who Jesus is. He knows everything about you. And he still loves you. Believe that this morning. It, it is his mercy in our misery. And I think that message is really at the heart of the gospel. I mean, think about Paul's words in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and Ben, and ben prayed this when he was praying, but Paul says, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our condition. That's who we were apart from Jesus. And that is misery, whether we knew it or not. But he goes on. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. I mean, that is mercy and misery. That's the gospel. We sing it around here sometimes, his mercy is more, right? Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins there are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. All right, we need to wrap up. The story ends in verses 15 and 16. Hagar gives birth. Abram names him Ishmael. So obviously Hagar had, had told him about this encounter with the Lord because Abram wasn't there. And I would just submit that maybe, while perhaps even bittersweet, that Abram and Sarai, just like Hagar, would have this constant reminder that God hears as well. And God's going to show them mercy and misery. It's going to take a while. They're going to have to wait another 13 years, but it's coming. My guess is this morning that, um, that all of us can relate to Hagar in one way or another. 
And so I wanted to speak to a few of those ways as we close here and just see if you fall into any of these camps. But the, the first way that we might relate to her is, is obviously as a stranger. And that could happen in a few ways. But, but maybe you're here and, and you don't know Jesus. You, the stuff I'm talking about doesn't make sense to you. You've never heard the gospel. You, you feel like a stranger. Or maybe you feel like a stranger today because, frankly, you're just ashamed of something that you've done. You, you think because of that, Jesus could never love you. He could never accept you. He could never forgive you. So you feel like a, like a stranger. Or maybe you feel like a stranger because of the suffering that you're experiencing and you, you feel forsaken and alone and you wonder, where is God? See, Hagar experienced all three. And Jesus sought her out. He pursued her. He heard her. He saw her. He spoke to her. And he's, he's doing the same thing for you today. He's pursuing you. He hears you. He sees you. He, he loves you. Even if you don't feel it this morning, I'm just encouraging you to believe it this morning. He has mercy for your misery. The, the Bible says he is rich in mercy. He's not going to be stingy with that. He won't withhold He's rich in mercy. Believe that. And maybe the rest of you, maybe, maybe you don't think you can relate in those ways. You don't feel like a stranger. So let me just offer this as a consideration, maybe even as a, as a warning. If you've trusted in Jesus and you're resting in that, you're, you're not a stranger to him. And so praise the Lord for that. We can rejoice in that. But here, here's the warning. When we're not a stranger, the temptation for us is oftentimes to overlook or look down on the stranger. I mean, you remember when Hagar, when, when, when she found out that she was pregnant, she got what Sarah wanted, all of a sudden she felt significant, and what happened? She immediately looked down on Sarah with contempt. Church, we... We have salvation. We have eternal life in Jesus and praise the Lord for that. But at times we also have this unwritten moral code of acceptable behaviors. Sort of like the nation of Israel in Moses' day, sort of like the, the Galatians in Paul's day. And we can be tempted if we're not careful to look down on those who don't abide. See, if we're not careful, we can assume that people who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who don't think like us, who don't vote like us, people who sin differently than we do, we can begin to think that somehow they are inferior to us. Or worse, we can start to think that they're beyond the reach of God's grace, that he could never even save them. My guess is that's what the nation of Israel thought about the Egyptian slave woman who gave birth to Ishmael the father of their mortal enemies. I'm guessing that's what the nation of Israel thought, and guess what? God saved Hagar. He found her, he heard her, he saw her, he loved her. And he does the same for jacked up people everywhere. It's the good news of the gospel. He came to seek and to save the lost. He's the friend of sinners, and I think maybe we should be too. The God of the universe, he hears us, he sees us, and he loves us. 
And all of this is true because of Jesus, because he lived and he died in our place. We, we get mercy in misery because Jesus didn't. We'll close with this. At the beginning of the service, we, we, we shared communion together. We partook of the, the bread and the juice, remembering the body and the blood, broken and shed for us. We remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so I want to just take you back there for just a moment as we close. I want you to think about Jesus on the cross. Bearing the penalty for your sin, for, for my sin, for all of the sins of all of his children for all time. All of that falls on Jesus. And when he endured that crushing weight, he cried out from the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Jesus got silence so that we would always be heard. And Habakkuk 113 says this about God. It says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And so as Jesus hung on the cross, we sing this in How Deep the Father's Love. The Father turned his face away. God looked away. And in that moment, Jesus was unseen so that we would always be seen. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to believe this today, that God hears you. He sees you. And he loves you all because of Jesus. Believe that this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, what a gift your grace and your mercy is. Again, thank you for this story that we can see ourselves in this and more importantly, we can see you, Jesus, in this. What a savior you are. Your mercy is more. May we be like Hagar. Lord, may you stir in our hearts a, a wonder that we could realize that you do see everything about us and yet you still love us. And would that stir worship in our hearts just like it did for Hagar. Lord, you're worthy of that this morning. I pray, I pray we would see you as you are and give you the worship that you are due. So I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.